Good morning. How y'all doing? You need to stretch. If you see me in the back, usually before a sermon, I'm starting to stretch. I'm getting ready for what I know is going to be a, a, a fun, intense morning. Uh, but if you guys need to wiggle around, get loose, here we go. I got a lot for us. It's going to be, it's going to be amazing. Um, my name is Nick. If I haven't met you, uh, I'm the lead pastor here and I'm going to get us right into God's word. Um, we're going to be in Luke 15. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Um, I mean, you're going to notice this morning quite clearly everything that I do and say up here, I, I hope, is going to be derived from the scriptures. And we want you to have a Bible on your lap. We want you to be keeping me honest. And we want more than anything for you to hear from the Lord this morning. So... Um, as always, if you don't own a Bible or you know someone who you'd want to give that Bible to, it's, it's uh, our gift to you. But we're in uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament, so kind of the second half of the, the book there. And then uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke um, would be the third Gospel, kind of the third book uh, in the New Testament. Chapter 15, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. But then I'm going to skip down to verses 11 through 32, since we did 3 through 10 uh, last time. But 1 and 2 kind of set the context for us, so let's begin there. I'll read, pray, and we'll, uh, we'll get going. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, verse 11, and he said, this is Jesus talking now, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and... As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry 
and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Let's pray. So much, so much on display in this text. One of the sweetest stories in all of Scripture before us this morning, God. And at least as far as what we'll be focusing on today, Jesus, I would just ask that you would bring the wandering home. God, that if there are people in this room this morning whose hearts are kind of playing with the idea of running off, kind of coddling sin in the night. Maybe there are some even here who, not just in their heart, but with their hands and their feet, are off in a distant land. They're here because somebody made them. (laughs) But they're not here. God, I pray that there'd be a great homecoming in this room this morning as we gather around your word and you reveal your mercy to us. I pray your spirit would call your children home. I pray you'd open our eyes like this son. We would come to ourselves. Realize we were created for so much more. See our offense and come running home to the Father's embrace. Jesus, only you can do these things. Holy Spirit, come. We ask you to move in our midst this morning for your glory and our good. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, Historically, um, if you're familiar with this parable, which actually a lot inside and outside the church would be, uh, it seems to me the the focus is kind of always on one son. The first son that shows up here, the uh, younger son, this one who kind of goes off and gives himself to extravagant living and then finds himself in the mud with the pigs and his eyes are opened and he comes back home and Uh, We kind of focus in on him, and uh, in fact, so much so that if you're familiar with how this has at least historically been uh, titled, we call it the parable of the what? The prodigal son. This guy, that first one, the younger one, that's the one that we uh, focus in on. But what we come to realize when we look at it a little bit closer is that there are two sons here. In fact, Jesus begins that way, doesn't he? In verse 11, there was a man who had... Two sons. And one of the things we typically would think is, hey, maybe this second son is just kind of supporting cast. He's just a little bit player, 
supporting the, the main story that's going on with the younger. But when we look, we realize, wow, perhaps uh, actually even more accent and emphasis is put on this second one. Uh, if you know kind of the mechanics of storytelling, it's the older son at the end there who... His story isn't, isn't resolved. It's left hanging. Is he going to come into the party? What's going to happen? So in many ways, we could say the emphasis is on this second son, but we'll get to some of that in his story next week. What I really wanted to bring, at least to our attention before we even began, is, is that there are two sons here. That this is a parable about two sons in particular. I, I think we're further confirmed in our understanding of, of this parable uh, and this idea of, of two sons when we consider the context in particular. Uh, that's why I wanted to read verses 1 and 2 so that you could see it afresh because if we don't see the actual audience to whom Jesus is directing this amazing parable, uh, we will not be able to interpret it aright. And so I wonder if you notice there are actually uh, in audience that day two groups, you could say. Verse 1, there are the tax collectors and the sinners. And they're gathering, they're coming to Jesus and he's welcoming them and, 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 and eating with them and sharing the table with these guys. These are the sorts of folks that have lived lavishly, extravagantly, gone off and made a big mess of their lives. Very much, you could say, like the prodigal in the parable. But then there's another group that appears in verse 2 there at the beginning of our text. And um, they're called here the Pharisees and the scribes. These are the religious leaders, uh, some of the religious leaders in, in Israel's day at this time. And, and, and these are the guys who are sitting back kind of with their arms crossed and, and, and their, furrow, their, their brows furrowed and they're kind of grumbling among themselves as they watch Jesus uh, sharing the table with kind of the, the scum of society, the outcasts, uh, the muck, the, the, the guys who have, have been walking in sin and everybody knows it. And they're here going, what's up with this? This guy calls himself a rabbi. He calls himself a man of God. Look at who he keeps company with. And they're grumbling. You see it there in verse 2. This man receives sinners and he eats with them, they're saying. And that's an indictment against him. In many ways, you could say they're a lot like this older son who shows up in the parable, right? Who I might call, you got the prodigal son, he might be the religious son. Everything's right, done all, he obeyed his father, this, that, but he refuses to enter into the party when, 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 when the father's eating with the, the prodigal. Now, I'm not going to sit at that table. Mm-mm. This guy's a mess. You see what's happening? Jesus has something to say to both groups. He's got tax collectors and sinners in audience. He has Pharisees and scribes in audience. Uh, two groups, two sons in this parable, and he's going after both of their hearts. Because they're both lost in different ways. They're both in need of grace in different ways. One lost in sin, the other lost in righteousness. This morning, we're going to focus in uh, particular on um, the the first son, the younger son, the guy who shows up first in the story here. Um, and what I want us to realize 
as I begin and kind of try to get, get into some of this, um, these two sons, it seems to me, uh, kind of represent for us two basic, kind of fundamental, basic approaches that human beings have towards kind of fulfillment or, or achieving happiness or joy uh, in life. Uh, on the one hand, with the prodigal, you have what we might call uh, self-indulgence. We go about fulfillment by trying to just get what I can as quick as I can and filling my belly. But then we'll look later next week at the older son and his approach would be more like self-righteousness. I'll kind of obey the father if I have to. I'll be the good boy because it will get me what I want in the end. Two approaches to fulfillment, two approaches to uh, happiness and, and trying to kind of fill the void that we all uh, know we have. This morning then, focusing in on this younger son, the prodigal son, I, I, I'm going to look obviously at verses 11 through 24 then in particular. And we're going to make note of three things. First, his approach to fulfillment. I want to take a closer look at it in the text there. What's his approach? This is what's going to make me happy. This is what I'm going to do. What, what is it that he does exactly? And then we're going to look at the fallout of his approach. Because inevitably, when the approach to fulfillment bypasses or makes an end run around or doesn't, uh, doesn't come through the Father or through God, it ultimately will fail us. There will be a fallout, and we'll look at that in his life. And then finally, we'll look at the way back home, the way home. How is it that after you've gone that route, you've fallen down to those depths, how do you get back home? We'll see all of this in this text. And actually, next week, what we'll do with the older son is exactly the same thing. Well, let's focus in here then. Um, first, I want to look at this younger son's approach in verses 11 through 13. There's where you can focus your attention. Now, again, if I had to sum up his approach, I would say it's more or less self-indulgence. The way he thinks he's going to get satisfaction, happiness, joy, the way he thinks he's going to find life is by just devouring everything he can. Give me all that I can as quickly as I can. He's going to try to bypass the father to get straight at his stuff. He wants the father's stuff, make no doubt about it, right? He just doesn't have any interest in the father himself. So he's going to go straight for it. And we see him saying, listen, give me what's coming to me and give it to me now. Now, in these verses, what we need to first understand is the incredible offense that is taking place here. Um, I mentioned this, I believe, a couple of weeks ago, but it is worth sitting on again, especially now as we dive into this parable in more detail. Uh, what we need to understand is that uh, back in this day, and really in many ways in our day still, inheritance would, would come to uh, a child upon, especially a son there, um, upon the father's death. We're looking at the father here. We recognize he has hired men. It seems he has a lot of land. It seems he has a lot of property, a lot of possessions. He's well off. And customary uh, at this time in Israel would be that uh, the firstborn son would get kind of a double portion of that inheritance upon his death. And then any other sons would kind of get one portion. So the way this would break down here is this younger son would get one third. The, the older son would get two thirds. 
One-third, still an awful lot, it would seem. And this son is tired of sitting around waiting for it. He wants what's coming to him now, even while his father is still alive. When he comes to his father there in verse 12 and says, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. He is essentially saying, Father, I wish that you were already dead. I'm tired of sitting around waiting for you to die. Give me what I want and give it to me now. That's what he's saying. One commentator puts it this way, and I want you to hear it. The younger son's request shames both his father and his family. It is a certified public statement that he no longer wishes to live within or be identified by the family. In requesting what should become available only at his father's death, the son is in effect writing his father's death certificate. In ancient Jewish society, that was a virtually unforgivable offense. You're dead to me. Hurry up, old man. But I want your property. I want your stuff. I got plans for it. Big plans for it. Now the father... Upon hearing this, I mean, by all accounts, it should have driven the son out. You just get out. You want to be out of the family? Get out. But it's amazing. Though no doubt, at this point in his heart, there's a strange mixture of sorrow and anger. Grief and rage, we're told that the father grants his son's request. Verse 12, the latter part, and he divided his property between them. He said, okay. All right. Could you imagine this? Imagine if my son Levi came up and said something like this to me. How it would just rip your heart out. Are you kidding me? He said, okay. You take it, it's yours. And away the younger son goes. Um, Verse 13, not many days later, I want to pause there for a moment. (laughs) You just get the sense of immediacy, don't you? And and the the, the, the anxiety that this this younger son has in terms of, I got to get out and I got to get mine. I can't wait. Not many days later, he gets his stuff and we're told, not many days later, he's off. He's not waiting around. He is not interested in the father at all. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And he get as far away from my dad as I can. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, later down in verse 30, when the older son is kind of bemoaning the father's generosity and compassion, uh, this, this older son sums up what, what his younger brother's activity has been like. He, he says this, this son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes. 
Now, maybe he's exaggerating or hyperbole or something like that, but probably not. We get a sense here then what exactly this son is doing in this far off country. He's not trying to invest wisely. He's not trying to be an upstanding citizen and he just wanted to go and be a good businessman. He wants to just spend it on sin. Just nasty stuff. Devouring his father's house with prostitutes. Just give me whatever pleasure I can. I want all the world has to offer. He's longing and he's looking. And he's looking everywhere. Self-indulgence. And you got to wonder how many in our city are following the prodigal's path, right? How many have bought into this idea? Man, it's time. Get what you can now. I'm going to go after the world. I'm going to get all the money I can so I can get all the stuff I can so I can have the biggest house that I can, the biggest car, the best car that I can, you know, all the girls that I can, whatever it is. I want it now. We're on this path and they're all busy trying to fill their bellies, but it's going to leave them empty in the end. And this is where we come next to the fallout in verses 14 through 16, the fallout. Look at uh, verse 14 first. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So there's going to come a time, if God be merciful, where this self-indulgent approach will falter and fail. It will inevitably. The question is, hopefully it happens soon enough for you to come to your senses, repent and return. For some people, they'll live high and mighty till the day that they die, and then they will stand before God, bankrupt, destitute, and the floor will give out. And they'll say, what in the world was I doing living my life for that? But in one way or another, this approach will ultimately prove vain, futile, empty. I love what John Piper says on this point. He says, running away from God starts by feeling free and ends in utter misery. You see, there's a rush of freedom in the beginning, right? There's this rush of freedom. Man, finally, I just bucked the Father's rules and reign in my life. I get to go. I got the money. My pockets are full. Let's go have fun. Fight. There's freedom. The word um, translated in, in, in uh, verse 14 there, spent, um, in the Greek it could also, it really has this connotation of spending freely and lavishly and wastefully even. The idea is, he's not thinking about budget. <laughs> he's not thinking about, you know, rules and what's appropriate or planning for the future. He's not, he's not constrained by anything. He is free. Maybe you guys would like that. I mean, sometimes we give ourselves the, 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 the moments in time where we do that. Like, okay, I think I've used this example before. Like, okay, when we go to Disneyland, we're going to spend freely. Here we go. And then you get back home and you look at what you did and you, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? It was a good memory though, I guess. You, but you know what I'm talking about. You got this spend free, no problem, here we go. And then suddenly, reality sets in. Suddenly, 
he began to be in need. You're free for a moment. The exhilaration eventually gives way to misery. The freedom inevitably spirals into slavery. And that's what we see next. Verse 15. So he went and he hired himself out. The word there really is the side of he joined himself to this other man. He, he was in need. He had to come under this man. And what's his job going to be? He sent him into the fields to feed pigs. So this man who was once free is now serving food to pigs. Now for us modern folk here in America, we hear feeding pigs and we think, okay, yeah, perhaps low, you know, humble, dirty, gross, maybe. All right, we get a little bit of that. But for to the Jewish ears, this meant even more, right? You, you recall perhaps that in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11.7, pigs are not just physically unclean and kind of gross animals, cute when they're little, but then become these big nasty things when they're older. They're actually ceremonially unclean. God says, listen, don't even go near them because there's, there's like this, he, Again, he's picturing for Israel what, what this idea of holiness and set apart means and the pollution that comes. And he gives these physical pictures of it. And pigs are involved in the pictures. Don't touch them. And so what we're understanding here is, as, as these Jewish listeners are hearing, this son is now taking care of pigs. He's in the mud with pigs. Is that this guy is not just humble and broken and he's now down in the dirt. No, this guy is actually just, he's filthy before God. His soul is dirty. There's just a me- he has made a mess of his life in so many ways, not just physically, but, but, but even morally, spiritually before God. But it gets worse before it gets better. Let me look at verse 16, first part. He was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. When we wander, when we leave, when we, when we depart from the Father's house, when we pursue this self-indulgence as the way to fulfillment, this freedom that we think we have that ends in slavery, it, it, there's a sort of insanity that ensues. Because you'll never fill the hole. You never will. And so what will end up happening is you'll kind of spiral down more and more. So you look, now all of a sudden these longings that he had, that he was looking to more acceptable things at first, like give me stuff, you know, give me girls. Now he's looking at the food that the pigs have and go, maybe that will fill me. He's getting desperate. He, he's, he's, he's tried it all and there's nothing left. So there's this insanity to the, 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 the wandering away, the walking away from God. You end up doing insane things. And it still doesn't work. Latter part of verse 16. Did you notice how tragic this little note is? And no one gave him anything. Here's the picture. He can't even get the pods of pigs in his belly. The pigs are faring better than him. He's going for one of the things that they would eat, and it's like his master would say, Nah, son, that, that, that's for the pigs. But, but, sir, I'm hungry. I don't care. 
no one gave him anything. He ends this whole escapade utterly empty. The hole he was trying to fill in all of this is now threatening to swallow him up. This is the downward spiral of sin. This is uh, not just a story, not just a parable. This is real life. I mean, my goodness, I I had so many illustrations of this, but I had to cut back because I want to spend more time on the end of this text. But do you not see this again and again? People going down this road and finding themselves in the mud. Let me just tell you, I don't know why or how this happens, but um, it's interesting. It seems like when I'm going to be teaching on a certain text or something like that, that God in his perhaps kindness or to kind of help me out because he wants to communicate things to us, will kind of just... Certain illustrations will come up. Like, you remember when I was teaching on moths? I have moths in my closet. I'm like, what? Well, I got moths in my closet. When I'm teaching about things, it's like there's certain things that come. And this one's quite tragic, but I wanted to share it with you. This last week, I don't know why, but uh, I was on Facebook and I was just scrolling through. And for some reason, I thought about a friend of mine that I hadn't I had I lost touch with and uh, I hadn't heard from him or seen a post from him in a while now kind of backstory to this guy he was a part of the ministry that I led college ministry that I led there in, in San Luis Obispo um, he was an active Christian at the time and on fire with Jesus and then he just went prodigal he just went prodigal and he, he publicized it on on Facebook he, he literally, I mean, he, he walked this guy's road like to a T. He, 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 he went to Vegas. I mean, if, where does the prodigal go nowadays? He goes to Vegas. That's where the son would go. So he goes to Vegas and he gives his life over to inordinate, unbelievable amounts of sex and drugs and parties. And he just publicizes it. Like he counts all the women that he's been with and all this stuff. And it's on his Facebook feed. Every time you see it, your heart's just breaking. And you just pray for him. Like, what happened to this brother? What is going on? And then sometimes, um, frankly, I think it was when he was probably high or drunk, he would make these, he would post and he'd give you a window into the inner wrestling of his heart. He'd go, this isn't it. And he would kind of recall his previous walk with Jesus and like talk about God all of a sudden and kind of the weird, the the sorrow that he's experiencing in the life he's pursuing. You'd get this weird thing, there'd almost be kind of hope all of a sudden. And it just occurred to me, that's been a long time since I've seen a post from him. So I searched for his, his name and his little profile page came up and on top of it there was this banner from Facebook admin or whatever. And it says this, remembering his name. We hope people who love him will find comfort in visiting his profile to remember and celebrate his life. It's a notice put there by Facebook to alert you to the fact that this person is dead. 
October 28, 1992 to January 9, 2019. 26 years old, dead. Now, I don't know why anyone can die at 26 years old, not just because you're prodigal. I couldn't find any details. I tried to look. I, I, what's going on? What happened? It was all sugar-coated and glossed over, and I, I have my suspicions. Because you can't, you can't run the way that brother was running. For so long before your life just gives out. Now, now why do I say this? I, I suppose what I'm trying to say here is it is a big deal to leave the father's house. It's not just fun and games. Like, oh, I read the prodigal son. You know, when I'm done sowing my wild oats, I'll come back. Sometimes you don't come back. You understand? Sometimes you die there in the mud. It's called the road that leads to destruction for a reason. And it's wide, and a lot of people are on it. And then welcome more co-travelers. Come on, let's go. It's fun until it's not. Until you're dead at 26. Am I too intense? What can I do? I told you I was stretching in the back. I'm going to pull a muscle up here. Not everyone will escape it. Some will just die right there in the mud. So let me tell you, if you were thinking about, if you were looking at what's off in the far country, think again. Now, the way home The way home, we've seen his approach, self-indulgence. We've seen the fallout down in the mud, slavery, insanity, empty. Now let's look at the way home, verses 17 to 24. Thankfully, how my friend's story ended there is not how this younger son's story is going to end. Sometimes... One of the most loving things God can do is let all of your dreams come crashing down. Can I get an amen? Have you ever experienced that? Is that a part of your story? Sometimes one of the most loving things that God can do is let all of your dreams come crashing down. Just let you fall into the mud. I mean, maybe some of you are there right now, or all the stuff you kind of hoped your life would be, all the stuff you were aiming for, all the stuff you were you were working so hard, but just came crashing down. Well, listen to me, listen to me. I know one thing that God is after in the middle of that. He's after your heart. He's after your heart. When your life isn't working out the way that you want, it's not God necessarily abandoning you. It's God trying to awaken you. It's God trying to alert you. It's what uh, I think maybe some of the Puritans would call a severe mercy. It hurts, but it's mercy. I tell you what, I wouldn't be standing here if God hadn't shown me that kind of severe mercy, if my idols hadn't come crumbling down. If he gave me what I wanted, I wouldn't be in church. Until I got saved, everything I wanted was taken away. Because he wanted my heart. I praise him for it. 
That's what starts to happen here. This guy's life is, is crumbling, and, and as it's uh, crumbling, um, he starts to awaken. Verses 17 to 20. Now, um, in those verses, we're given four little details that I, I think outline actually quite vividly for us what is meant by the biblical idea of repentance. Sometimes, you know, in theology or as Christians, we have these terminologies that we use and stuff that, that's confusing and we give these kind of technical definitions to it. Sometimes a picture is so helpful. Helps you kind of understand what does it actually look like? If you wonder, what does it mean to repent? Here you go. Here's four wonderful little details that outline for us, I think, vividly what repentance really is. Let's look at this. Verse 17. I'll just take it bit by bit. But when he came to himself, stop there. What an interesting way, I think, of describing repentance. He came to himself. Repentance is coming to one's self. It's stepping back into reality. It's a step back towards who you really are. Now, the idea here, I, I think, is, is, is simple yet really profound. Here's the idea. You and I were created by God. In the image of God. And I think I showed you even last time what that idea of being created in the image of God means. We were created, designed to be His children. In His family. We, we, we live and move and have our being in and with Him. We're created to do all that we do for His glory. Like, here's the bottom line. You cannot truly know yourself if you do not truly know God. You cannot. There is no self-realization out there. You cannot know who you are, who you were meant to be, if you do not know the one who made you, the one who designed you to be with Himself. You, you can't know it rightly. You're going to feel lost. You're going to feel confused. So repenting first is an awakening to the reality that you were created to be God's child. That you were created for more than prostitution. <laughs> for more than worldly pleasures. For more than the pods of pigs. That, that you were created for relationship with your father. That you are his kid. What are you doing here? So far away. Repentance begins with coming to yourself. Coming to the reality that you're an image bearer of God and you're living like an animal. <laughs> what am I doing? It's no wonder, right? That when you're off in sin, you feel so alone. You feel so confused. You feel so unsatisfied. Like something's wrong, but you don't know what. He starts to awaken to that reality. He goes, wait a minute. I'm a son. What am I doing here? I'm a son of my father. Why am I working for this man who won't even feed me what he feeds his pigs? He's living like an orphan or a slave when he's a child. So first, he comes to himself, realizes that there's a reason why this place never feels like home, and it's because home is somewhere else. 
Second thing we see is that he owned his sin. He owned his sin. So repentance is coming to oneself and it's owning your sin. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Stop. Repentance says clearly, without blinking, without stuttering, I have sinned. There's something in those words, guys. We don't want to say it, right? We want to blame. We want to water it down. We don't want to own it. We want to self-justify. We want to cover. We want to hide. Once you finally wake up, here's what starts to happen. You go, man, I have sinned. You just say it. You just own it. You just name it because you know it's wrong. I've been wrong. What am I doing out here? Wasted all my father's stuff. Man, he loved me so well. What am I doing out here? I have sinned. Third thing we see. So it's coming to oneself. It's owning your sin. And we see it's understanding your place. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Verse 19, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Stop. It's not to say that he's not still going to be made a son. And we'll see that. But there has to be a realization in the Christian. We are these crazy paradoxes, okay? Where we know at one and the same time, I do not deserve to be here. I do not belong here. Because of what I have done. I have disinherited myself. It's over. I'm not worthy to be called your son. And yet the Christian is one who in Christ has made his son anyways. We simultaneously know we are unworthy of it. And yet he has counted us worthy. He is sufficient for it. It's amazing. But repentance is a recognition that God does not owe you anything. That mercy cannot be bought. It cannot be earned. It can only be given freely by a compassionate, loving Father. So repentance understands your place. Now, the second thing, or fourth thing I should say, is we see this son actually gets up and he goes home anyways. Even though he knows he doesn't belong there, even though he knows he's disinherited himself, he has enough sense that his father will still be merciful that he goes Verse 20, he arose and came to his father. I mean, so often we can um, kind of talk about, wouldn't it be nice if I turned from sin? Wouldn't it be nice if I went back home? Gosh, I know that this lifestyle is not so good, but maybe I'll just kind of give another year to it. This son says, no, 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 no. He comes to himself. He owns his sin. says, I'm not worthy, but I'm getting up and I'm going. And then we come now. To the Father's mercy. And I I think, in my opinion, this is the sweetest scene of all. Perhaps one of the most moving scenes in all of the Bible. And I tried desperately to leave myself enough time to deal with it. Take a deep breath and let's let's enter into this. But for me, if I could give you just a a metaphor of what I'm going to do as we enter into um, um, verses, I guess it would be 20 and following together. 
You know how when, you, when you're on a hike and you come across just an amazing view, sometimes you hike just to get to that view, right? What is it that you do when you see something beautiful, wonderful? Typically, you're going to take out your camera, right? You try to get it from every angle. Now you got all these fancy, you can do the panorama thing. You know, you got those guys doing that on the top of Half Dome or whatever. I did that. But you're trying to get snapshots that you know will never do it justice. But it's so beautiful, you just, I'm going to get something to put up on my wall. I'm going to give you five snapshots as we come to this scene now, because I think we should get this amazing view of the Father's heart. And I want you to see it. I'm going to give each picture, each snapshot a title, and hang it up on a gallery, if it, on a wall in a gallery, if you will. I just want to look at this together. Though I know I'm not going to do it justice. Snapshot number one, as the sun, remember, is now coming home. Snapshot number one, I'd, I'd title it, The Windows Waiting. The Windows Waiting. I wonder if you noticed this little detail there in verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I love that. His father saw him. I think we're invited to assume... I think what Jesus is trying to picture here is that it's like his father has been waiting and looking. Remember, this comes off of those other parables uh, where Jesus is trying to get at the same sort of things. And he's saying, I'm like the shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes looking for the one. I'm like the woman who lost the coin and sweeping looking for it. This is his version of that in this parable. The father is at the window and he is waiting. His eyes are set on the horizon. Where is my son? I know he's not going to stay out there that long. Come on, boy. Come on. His father saw him. And I'm telling you, the father right now sees you. I mean, in your wandering, (laughs) he sees you and his heart is broken. And the moment you even twitch to come and turn, he's on you in mercy and grace. He sees it. He's looking for it. He's delighting in it. He's anxiously waiting. It's an amazing snapshot. Snapshot number two, we call the race of grace. Because he's not just waiting by the window, is he? Not just waiting by the window for you, for us. He's not just, hey, all right, that boy ran my name into the dirt. He can at least, I can at least make him walk back up these steps in shame. And then I'll embrace him. No. He can't wait. He's off and he's running. But while he was still a long way off, verse 20, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran. It's very interesting. The word that was translated in the Greek for far off, where the sun went, is now here where he, uh, while he was still far off. The same word, this idea that the father sees him way out there and he comes running the moment there's a sign of return comes running. He's not just waiting. He's running. He is compelled by compassion. Commentators have long pointed out um, how unconventional this image would be for those Jews and things listening to this. Patriarchs around Israel and things in this time did not run. Like nowadays, it may be a symbol of status. You have time to exercise in the gym or whatever you are. Now you're a wealthy person. Back then, no, no, no. You don't run. 
He won't break a sweat. He'd have to hoist up his robes and bare his legs, and he's running down the running down the, the path after his He knows he's going to look like a fool. He knows he opens himself up to embarrassment, but he doesn't care. It's amazing. It's the Father's heart for you. It's the second snapshot on our wall in this gallery. Third snapshot. The kiss of kindness, I'd call it. The kiss of kindness. I suppose if I were the younger son, um, if... I was the one who had once wished my father dead. Okay, If I had taken all my share of his stuff and just wasted it in sin and lavished living. If I had taken his name and dragged it into the dirt and made him the laughing stock among, among the, uh, the town, the village where we live. If I'm coming home and I see him running towards me. I'm not sure I'm excited in that moment. Right? Like, I'm not sure that that looks like a good thing to me. From a distance, I see the cloud. He's running fast. You know, I I think I'm scared. That maybe he's come to his senses and now he's ready to give me what's, what's my due. Now he's ready to give what's been coming to me. Now he's ready to give me that strike on the cheek or whatever that I deserved earlier. But he doesn't strike the sun on the cheek. What a surprise it would be then when, as we read in verse 20, the father ran and embraced him and kissed him. You've got to let that settle in. And bear in mind, no doubt the son still smelled like swine. (laughs) You feel that? Like it's filthy and the father doesn't care again his compassion compels him get in here let me kiss the dirt off of your face boy i don't care it's amazing snapshot number four what i'd call the invited interruption the invited Interruption. Now, here is uh, perhaps one of the most important things I could say. Um, you might not even know what I'm going at with this title, but I wonder if you recognize that back up in verses 17 to 19, the son has been rehearsing what he's going to say to the father. Okay, here's what he was saying to himself. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Treat me as one of your hired servants. When we come under the conviction of sin and we realize let's not let's not mince words anymore we've made a big mess of things there's this tendency that we have feel like we got to pay God back like okay I no longer am worthy to be a son I guess I'll settle for being your slave I gotta pay you back for the things I've done. If I want your blessing now, I gotta, I gotta promise good behavior. We move from license to legalism. 
we move from self-indulgence to self-righteousness. We move from the younger brother stuff, lostness, to the older brother, lostness. Do you see this? I'll be the good one now if that'll get me some stuff because I know that I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Let me be your slave. We kind of come at it with, I got to pay God back. Because I know what I did was wrong. And yet, title of the snapshot, the invited interruption. Oh, what an interruption this is. I wonder if you notice, as the son begins to recount to the father now what he was rehearsing on his way there, the father interrupts him. He doesn't let him finish. And he won't let you finish either. The father, here, here's what we, what we see, verse 22, or verse 21. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interjects in this moment. Before he could say, treat me as one of your hired servants. Let me be a slave. I don't I'm not, I shouldn't be a son. I'll pay you back. Just let me have some bread from your table. The father interrupts, said to his servants, we read. And then now we move to snapshot number five. What I'd call the prodigal party. The prodigal party. This is verses 22 to 24. But the father said to his servants, he interrupts him. And what does he say? Bring quickly the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, I don't have time to do justice to all that's here. But let me at least say this. With the embrace and the kiss, it's as if the father is restoring his son to him in terms of his relationship as son. Okay? Get in my lap. Get in my arms. You're in the family. But then, with this robe and ring and 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 these shoes in particular he is now restoring the son in his in his status as son i don't know if you remember but joseph when he's taken from the dungeons and then brought into pharaoh's right hand right pharaoh does what with him he puts linen cloth he clothes him with linen garments puts his signet ring on his finger puts a golden chain around his neck he wants everyone to know this guy is my right hand he's not a prisoner anymore and so the father when we come running saying i shouldn't even be here he says yes you should i want you to know it i want everyone to know it Here's the robe, here's the ring, here's the shoes. You're not a slave. You're a son. Welcome home. The killing of the fattened calf, it's amazing. They did not eat meat. It's not like here today where every time we're having like, you know, meat at every meal or whatever. This was a very rare thing. It's a very special thing. And estimations are like, hey, maybe the fattened calf could could feed about 75 to 100 people, or a whole village. In other words, the father is throwing a party for everyone because his son is here. And he wants everyone to know he's been restored. I call it the prodigal party because I think it's 
debatable who's more prodigal in this scene, right? In this parable, the son or the father. If prodigal means excessively lavish, overflowing, just, just, just almost even to the point of wastefully just giving. Gosh, you got to think this party looks lavish. A verse that comes to my mind is when Paul says, where sin abounded, grace abounds all the more. We can't out-sin his grace. We can't out-prodigal in our sin what he will pour out on us in his mercy. And it's there where the son around the table with his father finally finds fulfillment. Now, if I could have a few more minutes of your time, I wanted to end with this. Back up in verses 11 through 13, there is um, something I did not bring out. It's not immediately accessible on the surface of the English text, but it's amazing in the Greek text, and many commentators bring it out. I want you to see this. After the younger son demands his inheritance come to him early, saying, as we saw in essence, I wish you were already dead there in verse 12. Hidden under the English is a stunning word choice in the Greek. It's a word uh, translated there as property, verse 12, when it says, and he divided up his property, the father divided up his property. But the word in the Greek is a word you may actually know, bios. It's where we get our words biology, um, biosphere, um, that sort of thing. Biography. It's a word that means life. Here's what I want you to understand. The father is pictured here as not just dividing up his property, his stuff. Here's some of my things. He is, as it were, ripping apart his life. For this wayward son. He's letting his life be ripped apart for this kid who wishes he were dead. It's a picture at the forefront what the father would be willing to do to receive his son back in the end. So here's where I would bring in for you the reality that Jesus is is the one sharing this parable, right? He's the one communicating this to the crowd. And we've already seen in Luke 9, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Where he knows and he's told his disciples what's waiting for him. I will be rejected. I will suffer. I will die. And along the way, he's telling this story about these two sons. And I think we're supposed to start to gather, wait a minute, there's a third son in the mix who makes sense of all of these details that holds together all that we just read in this story. There's a third son, namely the true eternal son of God, Jesus himself. So here's what happens. If we forget the third son is in the mix here, if we forget that Jesus is the one telling the story on the way to the cross, then we might read this story and go, oh man, look at the father, isn't he so loving? He's such a softy. He just kind of sweeps sin under the rug, and I know he'll come and he'll accept me. No problem. He's got all this compassion. Overflows, warm, tender. He wouldn't, he wouldn't hurt a fly. Look at how kind. 
And absolutely, is God compassionate? Is He loving? Is He slow to anger? Is He all of those things? Yes, but He is also just. He is also unswervingly just. He will uphold His law. He will uphold His honor. He will uphold His glory. And what we have to realize is that for us to be reconciled with the Father, for us to come home and find a place around His table, and to be filled again with His presence, it will cost an awful lot. That impulse in us to pay back, it's because we know sin is wrong and it needs payment. It's just we can't possibly pay it. So here's what we see. God Himself says, I'll pay it. Here's what I'll do. I'll let my own life, my bios, I'll let my life be ripped apart for the sake of prodigals if it means they can come home. I'll let my son go to the cross and just be torn asunder for the sake of sinners. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The only perfect Son of God, the only one, was cast out on the cross so that we could be welcomed in. That's how you get the Father's welcome. The Son of God, Jesus, on the cross, He, He was stripped naked. And mocked so that we could be clothed and celebrated. You get that? When he says, I'm thirsty there on the cross, he was given sour wine so that when we come and say, Dad, I'm, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. They wouldn't even give me the food of pigs. We get the fattened calf and the seat around the table. It's amazing. He was forsaken so that we could be found. He was killed so that what was once dead, like the father says of the son, the son was dead, now he's alive. He's the one who holds this parable all together. There's a third son in the mix. That's why I title it the way that I did. The parable, and it's there a father and his three sons. They both need saving, both these guys in the story, and they both can be saved by way of the third son, Jesus Christ. And you can too, so I just invite you. I know I preached for a while. I just invite you. Come home. And let line your hallway with those snapshots. God's arms aren't crossed. He's not waiting for you to pay him back. He's taken it on himself. He's ripped apart his own life to make room for you around the table. That is the place where you will find fulfillment. You go off looking. All these other places, the irony is it's all, it's all going to be found back in the place you left. With him. Let's pray. God, we rejoice in our Savior. We rejoice in the only perfect, the only true, ultimately the only eternal Son of God who has made a way for us to be adopted in as your children. Though we disinherited ourselves, you took that punishment, you took our fate upon yourself and gave us yours. Thank you. Well, I pray that all in this room would be coming home and finding fulfillment in your presence in these moments, Jesus. It's in your name that I ask these things. Amen.